Hiya, Tim here. And before the podcast, I've got a quick note. Due to rights reasons, the songs have been shortened for the podcast. Every song is taken from The The's Soul Mining. All tracks are written and composed by Matt Johnson. It was released on the 21st of October 1983 on the labels Some Bizarre and Epic. Enjoy. Tim's listening party was a lockdown sensation. Unfortunately, it was on Twitter, which you can't listen to. But Absolute Radio has the solution. Tim Burgess explores seminal albums alongside the artists who brought them to life. Absolute Radio presents Tim's Listening Party with Tim Burgess. Hiya, it's Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. I'm Tim Burgess and welcome to another episode of the show in which I sit down with an artist to go through an album, hearing the record and the stories behind it. So far, I've enjoyed listening parties with everyone from Sparks to Texas to U2 and The Kinks. To catch up on any of these episodes, just search for Tim's Listening Party wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please do get involved on Twitter using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party. This episode, I'm joined by the only consistent member of the hugely influential band, The The, a band who've received widespread critical acclaim, standing out at the time and to this day. Their success commercially has lasted as they continue to attract new fans, as demonstrated by the use of their song, This Is The Day, in the 2023 film Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. They're a band who managed to combine the technology of their time, play with experimental sounds, cross genres, and juxtapose these alongside thoughtful, clever, insightful and provocative lyrics. In this episode, we'll be talking about one of my favourite albums, one that's celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, Soul Mining. It's Matt Johnson from The The. We're going to be talking about Soul Mining by The The, and it's the 40th anniversary. How does that feel? I mean... Very strange how fast time is going. I know that... I remember as a little boy, my nan, my nanny Sue said to me, you know, that she, when she was, you know, 70s and that, she said, I still feel the same. She said, I still feel 18 inside. Yeah, and, wow. You know, time goes so fast and I can't believe how fast it's gone. And when you're a child, of course, each year is a fraction of your life, isn't it? So when you're two, a year is half your life. But when you get older and older, it gets a smaller and smaller fraction. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, Time is going so fast. I can't believe it's gone that fast. I still don't feel that different inside. Still feel as mischievous, <laughs> naughty as I ever did. Well, that's good to hear. But not quite as uh, fast in the uh, in the in the in the running races against my kids anymore. So I heard the album maybe thirty-eight years ago. I was eighteen <laughs> when I when I when I first heard it. Eighty-five. I remember me and my friend David Jones, also known as Jonah. Uh, we went on our first ever holiday, you know, to, uh, to to Europe. We went to Italy and, you know, we lived off peanuts and beer and uh, just had uh, Soul Mining on cassette uh, with the extra tracks. And, and, you know, it was just like that was our backdrop to the whole holiday and I'll always remember that. Oh. So apart from saying thanks for that. It's funny, it, isn't it? When you're younger, I'd do the same thing. When you would have, you know, music was less plentiful, I suppose. We didn't have Spotify and things like that. And you would save up to get your, your favourite record you might like it you might not like it but you invested I think most of us did back then far more time per album really yeah, yeah. I mean, nowadays there's a tendency to briefly listen to a couple of tracks or have compilations on Spotify yeah. or whatever but an album or two would become a soundtrack throughout the summer absolutely you know, it, it, it was, yeah. Was, yeah I know my sons don't do the same as that they just go from track to track to track but 
in those days, it was it was a financial investment when you didn't have much money. True. And it was an emotional investment. True. To really, really... Because you listen to it over and over again. I mean, you know, I, I like to consider myself as someone who, who seeked out interesting records, you know, when I was younger. And so at first you listen to a record and you're not sure about everything are you? You, you just trying to work out like where it's where it's coming from and 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 how you feel about certain things and then like like you're saying the investment just listen to it over and over again and you know and there used to be sleepers so you would when you didn't have much money you'd buy an album and if you didn't like it you'd play it again and again until <laughs> yeah, you did like it exactly and then you'd, then you'd, but i think I'm not sure if people have the same patience anymore. You know, you would play a track, you know, now if I listen to an album, I don't like it, I'll skip over it and find something else. So there is that aspect to it as well, really investing your heart, you know, your, your, your time as well as your money uh, until you did like it. That's absolutely true. I mean, it sounds so odd to say that now, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I suppose, like, with, you know, with soul mining, I mean, there's obviously the big hitters, you know, the, the instant ones, and then there's ones that, once you listen to about ten times, they're just, like, stand out absolutely your favourite songs. Yeah, and it was odd that the pure soul mining is seven tracks. Yes, the, the, yeah, the we Americans, should we should mention that, yeah. And, and I'm glad, I'm glad we only, we're only doing that today because that's important to you, right? It, it was because Perfect... The, the version of Perfect that should have been on was really the original 7-inch, if anyone was, but we did a 12-inch re-recording of it. Paul Hardiman and myself, yeah. who was my co-producer and engineer, who was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And it was never supposed to be on the album, but the Americans, I yeah. mean, you must have had experience. Yeah, of course years, I have, where yeah. We all have. You arrive there, and you're like, you arrived in New York and to, to promote and promote the album, and uh, the sleeve was different because they didn't want to have the African lady on the front, who was one of Felicuti's wives. Yeah. They thought, well, it doesn't really... They just say they changed that, and then I looked on the back. I'm like, well, hang around, there's an extra track on it. It took me 20 years to get it removed. I was so upset because wow. it was like you finished a book and there's a chapter that's discarded, and the publishers just stuck it on. Well, I mean, it make sense, when but... you're thinking about, for me, Giant is like one of the yes. best closers of all time. That was know? the whole point. You know? Yeah, and that, and that, and also that really matched the the, the feel and atmosphere of the sleeve. I thought that that song, right. Giant, was a pivotal, a very important track on yeah. Salmani. But though you know, in those days, you know, we had as artists less less power, less control. Unless you were a, a, a massive artist, then you yeah. had to put up with these things. You would argue about it and fight about it, but you, you didn't have as much power as you would have liked. We should also mention the the cassette version. Sure, course, sure, which, sure. Which, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, people are very fond of that. But the other tracks that were on that were um, re-recordings of an earlier album called The Pornography Despair. Now, you brought in a copy of Burning Blue Soul. Yes. And Burn the follow-up to Burning Blue Soul was supposed to be, or was, The Pornography Despair. Uh-huh. And this was in around about the period I was going between being an indie artist and a major label artist. So yeah. I've been on 4AD. Yeah, that's Burning Blue, Burning Burning Blue, Blue Soul on 4AD. Yeah. I was involved with Science of Sun Bazaar. Yeah. Uh, and Cherry Red Publishing. Oh, yeah. And I had a lot of dealings with the other indie labels like Rough Trade and Mute and Fetish. So I was very much part of that scene. Uh -huh. There was no money involved, so I was on the dole mm -hmm. for years. Uh, Burning Blue Soul cost £1,800 to make. It got good reviews, but it didn't sell very well. I was uh -huh. still on the dole. I was trying to make another album, so beg, stealing and borrowing studio time. I had a little sort of makeshift studio at home. And I managed to do Pornography uh, Despair. It wasn't ever mixed. But around about that time, I was then signing to CBS. Yeah. So we were talking about football 
earlier, and I yeah. likened it to a United fan. <laughs> and I likened it to, as a teenager on the dole, signing to CBS, who were a very glamorous record company at the time. Yes. It was like signing to Manchester United, yeah. in a way, because yeah. they had like Springsteen, uh, Dylan, Johnny Clash. Cash, Leonard Cohen. I mean, all the great yeah. singer-songwriters yeah. that I yeah. really admired. So I was thrilled to be signing to them. Yeah. But, of course, that comes with... Well, there's two sides of the coin. So there's suddenly a certain amount of financial independence in that I could suddenly come off the dole yeah. and I managed to buy my first flat, which yeah, was wonderful. But at the same point, there were certain commercial expectations. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd gone to New York to record Uncertain Smile with Mike Thorne. This is before recording the album Soul Mining. Mm-hmm. That went very well. In fact, that, it was that recording that then led to the, the deal with CBS. They loved Uncertain Smile and they thought they were signing this new very commercial pop act I said, well what else have you got yeah. I played them the pornography despair yeah and they were horrified right. they were like, this is this is dreadful this is the too experimental too weird and so then I wrote perfect and then I flew to New York again to work with Mike Thorne again and this turned into a what I would term my um, fear and loathing trip me and steve yeah. Took loads of drugs. Yeah. Smashed up the hotel room. The session, I mean, I was off my head. It was awful. And poor Mike Thorne, the producer, was horrified because I was so out of my head. I was staggering around the studio. I didn't know which day it was. And then Steve and I, we rented a car. We drove to Detroit and, and yeah. went crazy. Yeah. So that was a disaster. <laughs> and then we sort of got back to... London and CBS were outraged by her behaviour. Right. All the damage would have been charged back to me, I suppose. You didn't know that at the time, though. No. <laughs> As we all, you know, we all wonder why we never get ruled. Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, most artists end up in the same situation. So then went into a studio to re-record, to try to do more commercial versions of, of the pornography despair yeah. tracks. Yeah, And Annie Rosebury, who's my... Um, and our lady at the time went into a studio to, to redo the pornography despair but the nature of the tracks they still weren't that commercial mm-hmm. and it was some of those tracks that found their way onto the b-side of the cassette Got so it, yeah. things like absolute liberation dumb as death's head um, yeah leap into the wind yeah one of the tracks did make it onto soul mining which i think was the sinking feeling so yeah. i think that was one of those tracks as well. yeah so then they were like, well, these are better than the original versions, but they're still not what we're looking for, really. Wow. So then I decided to write a whole new album from scratch, which was where Soul Mining came in. Well, let's hear the first track from Soul Mining. It's I've Been Waiting For Tomorrow All Of My Life. That was the opening track from Soul Mining. I've been waiting for tomorrow all of my life. On that first track, you've got Orange Juice's drummer, Zeke Manika, who's pretty at the front yes. of that one, isn't it's he? It's a combination no. of so Zeke's powerful drumming with the garden live room, because it had a wow. brilliant live room. And the studio was... 
built by uh, John Fox. He was he was the original. That's it, Ultravox, yeah. And it was Andy Munro who went on to become a very well-established studio designer. I think that was the first studio that Andy had designed, and it had this brilliant live room, that really powerful sort of uh, aggressive sound. Yeah. And in those days, there was a fashion for the you would heavily compress a live room, and you get that massive sound. Then you'd gate. It's huge. The drum sound is huge on that song. Yeah, and so Zeke was perfect for that. But interestingly, that song along with Giant, so it sounds sequenced, but this is, we didn't have any sequences. And so... I read that you had to do it manually. Manually. (laughs) So I would sit there just playing the whole thing through and overdubbing these sequenced parts, which I, I didn't mind doing. No. And and then um, maybe you drop in if you made some mistakes. So I suppose, although it sounds sequence, is a bit more organic and it's got a bit more movement in it. Which is nice, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And we have the wonderful synthesizer solo by Thomas Lear on that, which sounds wow. almost like a like an electric guitar. style that he had and Thomas had this way of playing I remember we got a certain synthesizer down he went and then we went no 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 he was a chain smoker no that's the wrong one he had a certain style that he would play so we had to change the synthesizer and bring the right one in and he he had such a beautiful style beautiful way of playing because synthesizers as we all know can sound, sound quite sterile and lifeless but in his hands it sounded so organic and almost like a a natural instrument. But John Fox, it was a funny story with this, he'd just bought his Juno 60, but right. John said, and he was a very nice man, John, we really liked him, but he would, uh, he remember he'd come in and said, look, you can use everything in the studio, but please don't touch my new Juno 60. And he had it <laughs> under lock and key. And uh, we were there for quite a few weeks or even months doing that album. And then, you know, gradually as time went on, we cast these looks towards the the cupboard and we got the key to the cupboard and we used to sneak, sneakily get it out and we started using it. And so you should. And there was one day, <laughs> evening, he came down to get something and we're in the middle of doing something. <laughs> oh, I and he just gave a quizzical look, raised an eyebrow. But we put it to good use. Yeah. Kept it I bet he's proud now. Yeah. I think, he, I think he didn't mind in retrospect. So was it a megaphone at the beginning? Uh, well, you mean the, the voice? Yeah, the voice at the beginning. Well, and with, with the number seven is yeah. missing. That was just some old archive um, tape because I used to work in a studio and collect, um, could have been ex-NASA or American military, you know, public domain recordings. Oh, wow. I was fantastic. Collect those yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, the seven is missing. And I, I kind of liked, that's how we found it. I didn't chop the seven out and I kind of liked that, that yeah. work. So yeah. that was just found footage. Lyrically, it's fairly... A little bit political, I suppose. Yeah. You know, filled with useless information spewed out by papers and radio stations, just yeah. you know, anti-propaganda. Yeah. And as you know, when you make a record, particularly in those days, I mean, these days, Spotify and people don't necessarily listen to our albums sequentially. Mm-hmm. But we put a lot of time and effort 
you know, don't into the sequence. Yeah. To the sequence. Yeah, of the course. Album. And it can change the atmosphere so much. So, you know, for instance, if this is the day I've been the opening track, or whatever, I don't think we've had the same impact. It's a different message, isn't it? It's like, yeah. oh, here's a kind of like beautiful singles band or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. you know, this first song, I suppose, you did get a name for being a political writer. Mm. And I yeah. guess that, that, you know, as well as writing yeah. beautiful pop songs too. So. Yeah. And I think it was a right choice for, for, for an opener. I think so. Um, because I wanted it to be a strong statement. I like the... Because bear in mind, although I was signed to a major and I'd written some commercial singles, I was I came from a very alternative experimental yeah, background. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah, that's where yeah. I came and, from. Matt, can you continue to set the scene for when you wrote and recorded the album Soul Miner? At that time, it was a very pivotal point in my life because I'd gone from being on the dole and being single. Suddenly, I was in love. I met my first real proper girlfriend, Fiona, uh-huh. who then went on to design the logo for me. And Fiona, we were together for 11 years, very, very supportive, and she, we moved in together. And so my life had changed dramatically around about this time. And so then, it was around about the time I wrote This Is The Day. Yeah. And so This Is The Day, it's, it's a very hopeful song. Yeah. It's, it's a poignant song as well. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what... what Tracks people to, I suppose, um, because my life was changing very dramatically, but I still felt this residual sort of melancholy, I suppose, um, a slight melancholy wistfulness about where I'd come from, yeah. um, recent episodes in my life. And so I wanted to write a song that represented somehow where I'd come from. And it's on old, I was only 20, I guess, 20 when I wrote it. And it's one of those songs that takes on more meaning the older I get. Wow. Particularly the line about memory reading some old letters and the relationship with the family. And I suppose it's slightly, not that the music is is bluesy, but there's a bluesy element in the opening line where I say, you know, the traditional blues lyric is, well, I woke up this morning. Well, I had. Well, I didn't wake up this morning because I didn't go to bed. Yeah. And so that was the pivotal song going from Pornography Spare to Soul Mining. I'd already had Uncertain Smile, of course, which was released as an earlier single called Cold Spell Ahead. It sounds very different, though, doesn't it? Very yeah, different. Yeah. That's, that's an indie song. Yeah, um, yeah. Very... I mean, it, this, you can, when you listen to it, you know, you can tell that it's obviously it's the same song. And that was almost like two songs, because it, right. it, it had a key change and a time signature change halfway through. Yeah. That end section, so we rewrote yeah. that, changed that. But this is the day... I remember writing, and I moved in with Fiona because I'd been living in a bedsit in Highbury um, with my friend. We were flatmates, yeah. and I wrote Pornography Despair there. And then I moved in with Fiona, which was in uh, Bunhill Row. So I moved in there, and I remember around about that time I'd purchased a little machine called a Suzuki Omnicord. Right. And in fact, I had taken that to New York with me because Mike Thorne always insisted on using his very expensive Synclavia system. You remember the Synclavia? I do, well, I they do. Cost, they, they cost probably the amount of a house. Everyone was using them, weren't they? I mean, oh, yeah, they were so expensive. Yeah. So huge. So you had the, the, the Fairlights. Yeah, the Fairlights. They were the expensive. Syn- yeah. The Synclavias were even more expensive, something like 20 or 30 grand. Massive big things. And so for, so for me, it's, uh, if Fairlight is Peter Gabriel and Kate That's Bush, right. yeah. and then Synclavia is uh, Def Leppard. And Frank Zappa had one. Oh, well. did he? Oh, well, Frank Zappa right. had one. Oh, I, I like the Frank. PPGs, which were a bit... <laughs> bit cheaper so but Mike had one that he yeah. bought and I think what upset my manager at the time Steve is that Mike would insist on using on on every recording he did but then charge 
all the artists back. So that's how he paid for it. So, and Steve-O was being like, no, but Matt wants to use his Omnicord. Yeah. And Mike was just like, no, we've got to use this in Clavier. And I took the little Omnicord over. It was it's perfect for a flight as well, isn't it? Like, you know, you take, take it on a flight. Brilliant little machine. Absolutely yeah. love it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, like, give us a demo, would well, you? I'm going to. I'm going to give you a demo. So I wrote, I wrote Perfect on it. I wrote Nature of Virtue. Let's try to remember. Now, this should... See if people recognise this. Oops. Here we wow. Go. Again, so... I mean, that is gorgeous. And then... And then be... Well, you didn't wake up this morning because you did So, yes, I'd be like... This morning because you didn't go to bed You were watching the whites of your eyes turn red And that's... And so this beautiful little machine... I mean, <laughs> this is... Much. So I wrote my most famous song on this little thing and wrote several songs. In fact, in, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote another single called I Want To Be You. I found it in storage, so I got it out. That is fantastic. And the first time anyone's give, given us a demonstration on the radio show. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yes. but, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you, you live in hope and, and uh, my dreams have come true, so oh, thank you very much. But it's, uh, and it's still hanging in there, this machine. So, this, so that was a pivotal, a pivotal moment. And writing this is the day. Now, I don't know about you when writing songs. I get, can get very emotional. Yes. And sometimes get very tearful writing a song. Yeah. Not always, but sometimes. When, when it's a good one and you hear, yeah. the, hear it as a playback, yeah. um, you, you think, wow, that is really something else. And I've, I've and only had that a few times. Yeah, yeah. Emotional. I don't get, you know, I, I rarely get it. But yeah. but it's a beautiful feeling. When it's, you a beautiful do it. feeling it's a beautiful feeling, yeah. It's a beautiful feeling. I remember getting that with This Is The Day and I got quite emotional because it was a very, very honest, heartfelt song. So that was a pivotal moment. Um, I finished that off in Fiona's flat. Let's hear the second track from Soul Mining. This is the day. I didn't wake up this morning because you didn't go to bed. You were watching the whites of your eyes turn red. The calendar on your wall is ticking. The days off you've been reading some old letters. You smile and think how much you changed. All the money. That was This Is The Day. I mean, that was everybody's first image of you. It was shown on all the major TV shows, right? Mm. Yeah, now the, the, the video, <laughs> I was never happy with it. I love it so much. Well, I'll tell you what it was. <laughs> I don't mind it now. No, it's just like, I mean, it's just like, just really... Grey. It just reminds me of like I don't know, twenty-year-olds in London, eighteen-year-olds in London. Sort of like it's, it never goes out of, of style. That to what, me. What what it was was <laughs> I met with a with a director. who was a very nice chap called Tony Dow, and he was a very likable chap who went on to become a director of Only Fools and Horses. Actually. Oh, fantastic! He, he, wow, okay. what, what a story. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> and this was the first video I'd ever done. Yeah. And so when we were storyboarding it together, you know, I had quite a bit of import and oh, this, this, we, and I said I'd like to film it in a bit of a rundown sort of seaside town so we yeah. went to Eastbourne yeah 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 I wanted it slightly out of season a bit melancholic yeah and all my family were going to be in it which was which was lovely now looking yeah. back and I didn't really know the technical difference in those days between film and video 
And video these days, as we know, is very, very uh, high definition. Uh -huh. it's, it's very organic looking. You, yeah. you can simulate, you know, cinema look, film look. But in those days, it had a very flat, bit of electronic look to it, I suppose. Yeah. I didn't really understand all that at the time. And so I thought it was, I was going to see this beautiful cinematic mm -hmm. thing, very atmospheric, set in a rundown um, English seaside town in winter. So I remember the first, the first playback. I think Tony was there and his and his producers and everything there. And my, I'm like, I didn't like it. And they were a bit annoyed at me or disappointed at my reaction. But I'm thinking, this is not what I thought it was going to look like. This looks horrible. And I was very unhappy with it. And it went out. And then after a while, I asked for it to be withdrawn. I said, look, I don't really like this. And that's when I then started working with Tim. So the next video I did well, was our mutual friend Tim Pope. Yeah, I mean, and, and and anyone who knows your work knows that Future Matt was like video. You know, there's videos for every song on Infected yeah. and stuff like that. It, was, it became like a big part of you, yeah, didn't it? Did. Yeah, it did. It did. And 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 I only wanted to shoot on 35 mil. I thought Fair, I wanted yeah. that cinematic look. And then yeah. we with Tim we shot in New York and in Brussels, and and it was very cinematic, very intense. And when I saw that back, I'm like. This is how I feel. This is what I want, and yeah. I, I disliked this the day one so much that I got it withdrawn. But so much time has gone on now, and particularly because my, with my family, family yeah, there's only yeah. two of us left now. Yeah. So it's it's very emotional from that point of view. Yeah, and I think it's of its time, and it works. And it it's works the well. first one as well. Yeah. It's like yeah. it's sweet. It is sweet. Yeah, it is sweet. And my hair was like. Yours, <laughs> it, it really was, and, uh, I, I'd, uh, and yours would be like mine in a few years' time. Well, you 30, know, no, I, no uh, you've, got, you've got a fine you know, head of it. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. I'll just uh, make a mess of it now because uh, I'm all self-conscious. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, with with Tim Pope, I mean, he, you know, I, I met you through Tim. Yeah, and um, you know, he made a video for me, just just the one, yeah. and I would use him you know forever if i could i mean he, he, he's lovely he, to work he's with, lovely to work with yeah and the list of people that he's worked with yeah. you know like uh, the cure and soft cell yeah. and yeah. you know neil talk young talk and david Bell. neil young david bowie wow yeah. just goes on and on yeah, and on does, matt let's move on to track three the sinking feeling so sinking feeling that started out a track on the pornography of despair yeah and that's quite a political song really and particularly the chorus um, I'm just a symptom of the moral decay that's the, that's the line isn't it the country. yeah just a symptom of the moral decay that's gnawing at the heart of the country that is yeah. the standout line yeah, of that yeah. song and remember this is at the height of Thatcherism and yeah. Thatcher now is a distant memory to many people in this country but we could set the scene. Yeah, you know? I mean, it was it was a very difficult time. I mean, you in the late seventies, you had the winter of discontent. So you uh -huh. had the last days of the Callaghan Labour government, and there was obviously throughout the nineteen seventies, there was always a lot of industrial action. There were a lot of strikes. Yeah. And on the one hand, a certain segment of the population obviously sympathised with the people that were going on strike, and another section of the population were getting sick of it. And mm -hmm. I think the problem was it played into the hands of the of the Conservative government. I think right. I think the Saatchi agency were involved at that point, and they started using very clever advertising campaign, like photographs of rubbish everywhere, or yeah. Labour queues, Labour isn't working, and they were very, very effective at um, undermining Labour. And people, I suppose, wanted a change after a number of years of the Labour government. And yeah. Thatcher 
I suppose, was novel. To have a, a female Prime Minister, people felt by having a female Prime Minister they might have some feminine values. Mm -hmm. But of course, it wasn't. And then began the process of deindustrialization and transferring Britain from an industrial nation into a service yeah. economy, you know, really placing great emphasis on the financial service sector in uh, in London. Mm -hmm. And this caused terrible hardship, yeah. you know, outside of outside London, London particularly yeah. up the north. Yeah. In north caused even more industrial problems, a massive rise in... Like private. privatisation, really, wasn't it? Yeah, well? yeah, absolutely. So yeah. that was the start of it, what we call sort of neoconservative politics, which then morphed into neoliberalism. It's all the same thing, really, but massive transfer of wealth yeah. from the public sector. You know, yeah. this contract, really, you know, this, this sell-off of um, public assets to say to the public, basically, look, you can, you can buy shares mm -hmm. in... In, you know, with the coal industry, the gas, telecoms, but the public already owned it, and then we've been asked to buy it again. But of course, the public were then just middlemen, so the public bought the shares, which were, they quickly sold on to huge corporate concerns, a lot of them overseas concerns. So the, the country was basically flogged off. Yeah. And during this period, we of course had you know, early eighties. There was the, there were the there were the riots yeah. across the country, yeah. uh, particularly in you know Liverpool, Manchester. Uh, Bristol, Bristol, Bristol yeah. as well, London. A lot of social unrest. The Falklands War came about yeah. because her popularity was really dwindling. About and the Falklands War, she used it, didn't she? She for did, and, and she, you know, she all those deaths, you know. Yes, and then sort of portrayed herself as a sort of Churchillian figure, and then her popularity soared, as it often does in Britain and America when there's a war around. So it was during this <laughs> period of time, and there was increasing sort of hardship, massive unemployment. The cohesion was falling apart in the country. So that the sinking feeling, the sinking feeling, really, is, yeah, really about that. That. yes, yes. So uh, symptom of the moral decay that's gnawing at the heart of country. Yeah, there's a beautiful sort of synth doing a cello part. Uh, 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 uh. The, the opening, um, um, yeah. um, um, oh yes, yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. that was and, a Juno, uh, yeah. 60, I, I think I think I played that one, I played the organ on that, I think it was a Hammond organ, I did it I, I would say there's a cello kind of vibe, isn't it? Yeah, Maybe, no, I can know. see what you yeah, mean, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And then um, I played the, like a Hammond organ, and one of my favourite bits on this is, is the clapping, because a sudden yeah. change, I'm clapping on the offbeat, then the, on the onbeat, and then the offbeat. You can't destroy your problems. Destroying yourself. Yeah. I quite like that. I'm just kind of obsessed by claps. You like claps as well? Yes, I do. Yeah, and I, like and, uh, I uh, find them quite difficult to record. You know, so How, uh, was it was it quite an easy clap to record that I one? I think <laughs> so. I think so. And I can't remember how the switching to the onbeat to the offbeat or vice versa, yeah. whatever it was, yeah. uh, how that came about. But I quite enjoy that little moment. It used to be in the 70s. There was a special machine, wasn't there? A clap machine that people used to use. There's, like, on drum machines. You can get the yeah, claps. Yeah, well. But yeah, then there, there was a dedicated clapping machine before you even had I drum didn't, machines. I didn't know machine. that. Yeah, there was a little fantastic. machine they used to use on those disco tracks in the 70s. Here it is. This is The Sinking Feeling on Absolute Radio. Moral decay that's gnawing at the heart of the 
I really like this thinking feeling because it's kind of like it bridges this is the day and uncertain smile yeah. with with a kind of like I suppose it's like you know I've been waiting for tomorrow and, and it's kind of political and then the sinking feeling is kind of political and then it's, yeah. it's surrounded by these two pop masterpieces yeah. um, I'd, I'd love you to talk about uncertain smile yes so uncertain smile was um, there were various versions of this the first version that came out was released as an independent single in some bizarre was called Cold Spell Ahead. Cold Spell Ahead. And Cold Spell Ahead was almost like two songs in one because you had the body of Uncertain Smile, but whereas in the later versions or the version on Soul Mining, the piano solo comes in, yeah. comes in on the earlier version, Cold Spell Ahead, there was another song almost called Touch of Experience. So there was a key change and a tempo or time signature change that happened um, at that point in the song. And it was recorded for not much money. Again, an all-night session. Yeah. And it came out as an independent single. And then I did another version. I flew to New York to work with Mike Thorne, yeah. as I mentioned uh -huh, earlier on. And uh -huh. that, that, that was a very successful recording session. Yes. And we came back to London, though this was funded by London Records. Steve-O touted it to other labels and CBS really wanted it and yeah. they came in. That was released on CBS as a 7-inch and a 12-inch and that original version, so instead of the piano solo, they had saxophone. Right. Saxophones right, right, right. and possibly clarinet. And this was before the album, right? That was before the yeah, album. Okay. And then when I recorded the album, because I was now working with Paul Hardiman, we decided to do yet another version. Great. Because we felt it would be a bit patchworky having a Sonically, the Mike Thorne version didn't really fit in with the new yeah, version, so yeah, we did yeah. a new version. We had real drums, but then we had this outro section, and we thought, what are we going to do with this? You know, should we just cut the song off there? And and in the garden studio, there was this beautiful Yamaha Baby Grand, mm -hmm. and we were looking at that and looking at each other. We were thinking, <laughs> did we? Maybe, maybe that's what yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. staring at us. And I contacted Annie Rosebury, my A&R lady at CBS, and said, do you know any good pianists? Mm -hmm. You know, we want to use this, and, she's, and she got back to us very quickly. Had to think about it and said, look, what about Jules Holland? Did you know of Squeeze? Or, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah. you didn't. You just didn't think you'd be able to get him or something? Well, I, or, didn't, I didn't really think about it. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't consider him, really. I, I, I knew of Squeeze, I knew of Jules' name, but yeah. I didn't really... Did was he doing the it? tube at that point, or...? I think it was before... Was it? Well, was, well, I well. think. I can't remember that. Yeah. Anyway, she suggested to him, and we said, great. Yeah. And the funny story was, he. it was a very hot summer day, <laughs> and he showed up in full leathers, motorbike leathers, because he loves his, his cars and his bikes, right. Jules. He's got a, a large collection of vehicles. <laughs> it, was, it was baking hot, and he came in, a very affable chap. Yeah. And he came down... And he sat at the piano. He said, let's have a run through. He listened and he realised it was the same sort of four chords, just repeating and yeah, repeating. Yeah. He practised, said, yeah, he said, I think I've got this. You know, I'm just going to improvise on it. He said, OK. And then the first take, and it's one take all the way through, apart from one little drop in towards the yeah. end. Just one little drop in towards the end. Just did the whole thing. Amazing. Do you think he knows how incredible that is? 
Well, he did tell me he gets asked about that. So does he? Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, wow. I sometimes bump into him. Uh, I'm not surprised, one, really. Yeah, he he's, he gets asked about that all the time. And funnily enough, we did do a version on uh, later. Right. Once when I was cool. but he he tried to <laughs> play it again. And of course, the version he did on later was nowhere near as good as the original one he did. There was a moment of wonderful inspiration. Yeah, that was absolutely perfect. And on our last tour, my my permanent keyboard player DC Collard nailed it completely. You know, yeah. learned, on the last tour, he said, "Hey man, I think I want to do an improviser." I said, "No, yeah, I want you to copy it note for note." Yeah, because people know that so well. It's the crescendos and the falls and the build up. Yeah. I said you have to learn it note for note, which he did, and he did a brilliant job on it. Yeah. Wow. But that was a, a, a wonderful moment of uh, inspiration from from Jules. It was it was brilliant. And as, as as it was happening, I just remember Paul and I sat behind the mixing desk, looking at each other like that and laughing. Yeah. We thought we 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 yeah. knew we had something magical. It's amazing when you a know, feeling you, time, you get overwhelmed by a feeling like that. Yeah. Isn't it? You know? Yeah. We knew how good it was then, and uh, all credit to Jules for that moment of inspiration on that hot sunny day let's play that song uncertain smiles stares from a pair of watering eyes uncertain emotions for some uncertain Sweat pours out, just shout. I try to swim and pull you out. The fourth track on Soul Mining, Uncertain Smile. I'm going. I'm going to ask because I actually don't know. But did it come out as a single again? Then no, 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 it didn't. Okay, okay. <laughs> Rubbish question, but I, I, no, hope, no, I, hope, no, I hope we keep that in. No, that's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> but it was Uncertain Smile. Perfect, which was the original seven inch, which unfortunately I think that should have in retrospect, that version should have been on Soul Mine. It could have been on that, right? But it but it wasn't. And obviously the version I didn't like ended up on Soul Mine, which I wasn't happy about. But this is right. the day became like the third single. Yeah. And that that version of Uncertain Smiles how long is it? Six minutes, seven minutes. So it, yeah. it, it'd be too long to come out as a single. Yeah. Yeah. So that closes side one. Side one, one yeah. And side two is interesting because it's a bit more esoteric and cinematic, I would say. And I have to agree. It's harder to get into, or it was yes. as an eighteen-year-old. Yeah, but absolutely, and I'm not going to say more rewarding because that that undermines side one. But yeah. it's more rewarding in a way, you know. Yeah, because it takes longer to get. Yeah, it. yeah. Matt, this feels like a good time to ask you about Paul Hardiman, who you co-produced so mining with. Paul's an interesting guy. I'd worked with Mike Thorne quite so a lot. So Mike was living in New York, was Mike he? was living in New York, and we did a couple of recordings together. But and who did he... Who's he famously known Mike for? Mike Thorne, he used to produce Wire. Yeah. But how I got to work with him, not only through Wire, but through... He produced Tainted Love. Tainted Soft Love, so yeah. He was working yeah. with Soft Cell at yeah. the time. And, and then Steve-O, of course. Um, yeah, and Soft Cell were... Some a lot of time in, in New York and working with Mike, and so that's how yeah. that came about. But got then yeah. things went a bit strange between... Steve-O and Mike and then we brought Paul in and I really got on well with Paul very very funny guy if you look at his like um, tra- you know his resume yeah it's pretty inspiring yeah. you know Kate yeah. Bush yeah. and yeah. Pell Fountains I was really thrilled yeah. to yeah, yeah. He's, thrilled he's, to see he's, he's brilliant he's retired unfortunately now Paul but and we only did one album together because 
Steve O fell out with his manager, right. who happened to be Paul's wife. He seemed like an amazing character when you, I mean, to me as a fan growing up, you know, hearing your music and reading about Steve O as yeah. well. I mean, I could only, in, in a way, compare him to someone I knew, Tony Wilson, who is like more than a record company boss. There's too few of these characters left now because they couldn't exist in this climate. Right, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Immediately, but Steve-O... Obviously, he had uh, some bizarre... Yes, so some bizarre, and he managed... It was a production company and a label and a management company. And at one point, uh, I think the the golden period, you had uh, Soft Cell, there was Cabaret Voltaire... Psychic TV. Psychic TV, Coil... Yeah. Uh, Swans, I should send a Neubat and Test Department Fetus. I mean, myself. just incredible great, roster, yeah. Great setup, and we were all very friendly actually. Yeah, We'd all yeah. party around at Steve O's house, but then things got crazier and crazier. The, 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 the drug use increased and the paranoia and the destructiveness. So. There is um, an album that I really love uh, by Mark and the Mambas, and on the back sleeve, the, the, the characters on the back sleeve, including yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like blows my mind, you know. And that divine that, and yeah, that was know, during that, that and, period. It was it was a very creative period. Yeah, and, and Steve, you know, he put together. He he was a he was huge energy uh, that he had, and he drew all these fascinating characters yeah. together. And I think Andy Warhol's on the back of it as well. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they did meet him in, in New York, and it rose incredibly fast, and then collapsed very, very fast. Right. Um, and so, one of the casualties during that period would be the, my relationship with Paul. Unfortunately, that's such a shame. He, yeah. Paul's manager was his wife, and Steve O fell out with her, and it, be, it became impossible. Did he engineer the whole of the album? Yes, he did. So Paul and I, I remember when they when things went south with Mike Thorne. We met up with Paul, and I really liked Paul a lot. We we got on like a house on fire. Very funny guy. Very much an old school engineer, co-producer. Also, Mike was produced. I wanted to co-produce because yes. I, I'd been yeah. very, having worked in studios from a, from a young age, I kind of knew my way around. I knew what I wanted. My ideal situation is to have a very good engineer and, and co-produced with the engineer. I, I like that. Well, when you're young and you've got really new ideas, it's good to have someone who's kind of old school, a yeah. little bit old school, to sort of like balance that absolutely, out, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And Paul was very much old school, very analogue. Yeah. And uh, which where everything was in those days, of course. But we did most of it in the garden studios in Shoreditch. In Shoreditch. Which I ended up buying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that studio. I also wanted to involve some of my friends in the recording of the album so people like Zeke Manyika who um, love him were you, fan, were you a fan of Orange Juice yeah I liked yeah. Orange Juice and I knew them yeah, they, they, yeah. They, they were friends and, and Zeke and I became we're, we're good mates and so I wanted him involved and he'd been involved in some live shows that I'd done just prior to that and Jim Thurwell from like, yeah, Fetus yeah, got yeah. involved Thomas Lear who I was a yes, fan of with, did a record with Robert Rental that's right, right yeah, yeah. yeah and Thomas was, was wonderful to get involved so it was a combination of more sort of alternative indie friends from yeah. that world but also with some very good session musicians yeah and we also got you know, famously Jules Holland let's move to side two of the record to me the most unusual track on Soul Mining is the next one which is uh the Twilight Hour. That is, a, that is a very cinematic. Now that relates to my love of film soundtracks. I've always loved film composers, soundtrack music. You know, not only Ennio Morricone and yeah. Nino Rota and characters like that. And I suppose this one, again, Thomas Lear. You can hear him on the creating this really beautiful, almost an Oriental sounding yeah. on the synthesizer. Yeah. And again, yeah. it just shows that 
organic element to his synthesizer playing. Yeah. You know, it does sound like a acoustic instrument in a way, yeah, the way yeah. that he uses the, the pitch bend on this. And we have cellos, we have percussion. And lyrically, this was a, a strange track. I was newly in the relationship. You know yeah. the insecurity when you're in a new relationship and, and it's not exactly on-off, but you're not still not certain about each other. There's a certain of course. insecurity. If, you, if yeah. you don't get a phone call at a certain time, you get insecure. And nowadays, of course, it's text, I suppose. Yeah. But in those days... If you don't get a text. You sit by your phone, well, you might <laughs> get your text, then you get insecure. But in those days, you'd be waiting by the phone and might have even been before arts machines, I don't know. Or arts machines were just coming out. So it was, it was, it was about the early, early stages of a relationship and the vulnerability yeah, yeah, and the yeah. insecurity and the paranoia. And I quite like some of the lyrics in this. It's like, you're relying on her for your independence. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. slightly nonsensical. And also just setting the scene. Cause right. People are driving home from work for the weekend. Uh, yeah. So it's and, and just a sense of heat. Yeah. Because I think it was written during a very hot part of the summer. And that sense of sweat and heat and insecurity. And I wanted to create an atmosphere that was very... Um, it's almost like film noirish and hot and atmospheric yeah. and insecure. Because you've been quite into doing soundtracks and stuff, haven't you, as yes, well, like yes, later? Yes, recent years, yes. So, recent years. So... Set, set you up in good stead. Yeah, so that was an attempt to, to do that. And this is a, it's quite an underrated track on this album, but it's one of my favourites in terms of its atmosphere. Were you into like European cinema? Kind of? All sorts of cinema. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love watch too many films, probably. Yeah, what well, even now? Yeah, I, I still love watching films. It's now way past the hour she usually phones. Decided not to tell her you're a joke. Where could she have got to? That was the Twilight Hour. I'm chatting to Matt Johnson about the, the soul mining. The track itself, uh, soul mining, um, the opening sound, which is like that strange sort of, it's like a, a horn or like a foghorn or something. There was a, there was a keyboard called the emulator. And it yes. was the emulator one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought an emulator two for Infected. Um, that's another story. But the first emulator, because you know, we couldn't afford uh, Fairlights, even yeah. to rent them was really too expensive. But the emulator one was more affordable. Yeah. And we got one of those in, and I'm playing around, loading up different sounds. And that, I'm not even sure what that sound was. It's some sort of a weird, you know, run it through reverb. It's quite a haunting sort of, almost like a bit of a foghorn or something. A strange sound. <laughs> The song itself, a bit bittersweet with the lyric of something always goes wrong when things are going right, which was a bit of a you know, glass half empty, glass half yeah. outlook on life, I suppose. But I did like the atmosphere of that song and I like the the marimbas. Yeah. Played marimbas beautiful. and the and the and the and the wah wah guitar yeah. that sort of trails off into the 
into the distance. Uh, I did, I did like that song. And they're kind of like things that you wouldn't imagine going together. No, and that's you know. what the this, the thing with soul mining a lot. Of the album generally, and not being a a permanent band. I mean, I have bands and they come and go, and it's sometimes permanent, sometimes it's not. Is that there's not an obligation just to have all the musicians playing on each track, you know? So I could yeah. could have yeah. accordion on one track and yeah. a cello cellist on another track. Yeah. It, it made it far more um, kaleidoscopic, I would say, the instrumentation than if it was a standard band lineup on every track. So that was one of the the benefits of not having a fixed lineup that I was able to do that, and that would, yeah, I guess uh, filter into this is the day. I suppose having a, like yeah. the fiddle on top yes. of the accordion, which yes. I mean, as, yeah. I suppose you know, tradition is maybe traditional kind of like sound, but yeah. yeah, but you don't really hear it on pop. No. Here's the title track, Soul Mining, on Tim's Listening Party. That was the there with soul mining. I'm just thinking about side two, you know, in general compared to side one, and it's like it is really atmospheric and it kind of really builds. And then the last track, Giant, I could see why you were annoyed that this wasn't the last track. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, in, yeah. I mean, it was everywhere else apart from America and Australia, yes. right? But, yes. Well, that's a big, they, big, big territory, though. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's like. You, you've written the book, the final chapter, it resolves. Yeah. And that's that. And yeah, it comes yeah, yeah. Back from the the printer yeah and there's an extra chapter stuck on the end <laughs> yeah. which doesn't make any sense and this is another track which it has a a sequenced feel to it i suppose but there's no sequences yeah on it it's all played by hand i think that's what makes it i, th- I mean I sometimes i mean i love sequence stuff mm. I, re- I really do but but sometimes i just think you need the human feeling too and when and when you playing something that you'd like in your head to be sequenced but it's not yeah. it actually gives a better feeling I think so, I think so. A natural human and it moves around doesn't it a bit more yeah, and it does yeah. which is really, really important and again this features um, Zeke Manuka would you have done that after Zeke had put his thing down or together no I think what we probably did because I wrote it probably on the drum machine so we may have put the drum machine down then I I may have overdubbed yes. the sequence type parts. And then got Zeke like. to come in later. Then we got Zeke in, and I think. And also, to, again, you can hear the, the sound of the, the garden live room, the massive sound. But we also yeah. added, do you remember the old Simmons drum things, those electronic drums? You used to have a rack of, of Simmons sounds, and you either had the pads or you could trigger them from actual drums. So yeah. we would have triggered them from the actual drums, and, and they get blended in. Yeah. When he starts doing the, the towards the end, the, the, the huge sort of polyrhythmic. Yeah, type parts, and then we, we did, we were trigging Simmons, and we, and we faded them in as well. Gives there's a slightly sort of synthetic sound that that comes in, yeah. alongside the actual the real drums, and I think that's Zeke's finest hour on the drums for me. And we had also Jim Thurwell, aka yeah. Peters. Yeah, I wanted Jim involved in some way, so Jim came down to do some percussion. And Jim is one of the most inventive people that I know. He looked around, he said, he said, oh, what can I play? He went, um, oh, where's the kitchen? He went into the kitchen and he bought 
pots, pans, trays. Yeah. <laughs> and he set them all out. He said, right. He said, I went about sort of three or four passes. Yeah. So we, we recorded them three or four times. And he was at one thing each time and built up this beautiful, there's this percussion break. And it's him just building up this beautiful percussive pattern. Last that long, but it's com- you know it's composed entirely out of uh, kitchen utensils. It was absolutely brilliant seeing him work. He's I've wow. worked with him quite a lot over the years, and he's incredibly imaginative, a lateral thinker, and he will literally anything that's to hand he can create into something musical. Wow, but that's great to sort of like blend all that into the, yeah into the can we call it normal stuff? Yes, <laughs> yes, more traditional, I suppose. And the other. Um, striking element I think in Chad is the chanting. Yeah. The song builds and builds and builds and so we needed something. And you can hear And that was Paul Paul was involved in that as well, right? Well, Paul so Zeke. Yeah. Paul Harden myself. I love a good chant. Yeah. You know, it's a great feeling when you're doing it in, in a group. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant, and we and we did that, and we and we and we obviously overed up many many times yeah. to build yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we had yeah, 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 and then Zeke came up with the um, la la da 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 the recounter. Yeah. Suddenly that brought it yeah. to life, yeah. and we overed up again, and again, and again to create this massive African. Yeah, filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That track, I felt really, and that really makes sense with the album sleeve well, as well, doesn't it? Well, it, it does. Yeah. And I remember I came across that drawing and talking to my brother Andrew, uh, yeah. Andy Dog. He was doing all my sleeves, uh-huh. um, looking in the studio, and he was working on stuff and showing me bits and pieces. And I saw that, and I just felt that the colours of it, the yeah. answer, that primarily I was thinking of Giant. Really. Yeah, that, wow. That really, it suits that song yeah. perfectly, and it transpires. It was one of. Felicucci's many wives. Oh, right. I'm not sure how many wives he had. <laughs> Dozens. I heard there were 40, I don't know. But, oh my goodness. But it was one of his wives, a photograph of her, I think, that he took the drawing from of her smoking a joint. Smoking, yeah. Yeah, and the, the colours really suited the, the the atmosphere of the album, certainly the atmosphere that was in my mind when we finished the album. Although lyrically, there's a certain amount of angst, I suppose. How can anybody know me when I... Don't even know myself. myself. I'm scared yeah. of God, scared of hell. But the lyrics only tell one part of the story. Yeah. You know, as you know, m- music expresses things that words can't. The yeah. reason we have music is because it's a language that expresses things that's that's slightly beyond the rational mind and, and beyond the intellect. Really, it's it's very very deep, which is why it's a universal language. And and so the lyrics only tell one side of the story, but the but the music itself is very joyous, yeah. hopeful, and uplifting. Yeah, and and I like that sort of dichotomy, I suppose, between one and the other. It's not as uh, straightforward as being one thing or the other. It's a mix of all the elements. Really, I do think that uh, the lyrics taken by themselves can say one thing but without the music they don't make as much sense you know the lyrics are very important which is why songs like this is a day or a perfect beaten generation even from yeah. another album yeah the lyrics say one thing but the music it's like sort of a sugar coating sometimes if you want to get a hard political message across yeah something like beaten generation wrap it in a very sing-along gentle song yeah 
it can penetrate in a different way. I think it? so. Yeah, I yeah. So. Because sometimes, as, as opposed to if it's like quite hard hitting and quite a hard message, but it's like I ah, think it's so. Too it's too much. much. Yeah, too much. Yeah. Let's hear that final track from Soul Mining, Giant. Giant from the The Soul Mining. Matt Johnson still joins me. But this album, then, you know, this is the last track on the album. I mean, it set you in good stead, didn't it? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. uh, you know, where you went next with Infected, yeah. and then yeah. all the collaborators you, you work with on mm. on that, and video director Johnny Marr comes along and yeah. uh, for Beating Generation. and Yeah, and I think, and I think when, this, when this came out, it did well critically, but commercially it was a slow burner. You know, right. it's one of those albums that just kicks off, kicks yeah. over time. I mean, if you had all the sales compressed into one year, it would have been a very, very big selling number one album, I suppose. But it was very much a slow burn. Yeah. Year after year. And it's, and it's still a popular album amongst people. But the other thing I should say is that there was a lot of pressure on me to go on tour with it. And you didn't, did no, you? Because no, because I, I didn't think I could, I could do it justice, because bearing in mind in those days... Samplers were very expensive. Even the emulator, which was the cheapest one, was 10 grand, I suppose, or something. And because of the mix of the, the, the instrumentation and the number of musicians involved, I didn't think I could do it justice. How could you get these, all the chanting and cellos and accordions and piano solos? Yeah. And I decided not to, not to tour, but there was a lot of pressure on me to do that. And then when we come to do the next album, in fact, it, there was even more musicians involved in that album. And so I didn't want to tour that either. It was too impractical. So that's when we said, can we do a film? Videos, Every, yeah. And I did tour Films. that. I went all over the world showing the film in cinemas and things. So that's something that we did instead. But the album after that, then, of course, we did tour for the first time. And that was kind of like a band album, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was easier to tour, really. Incredible stuff. Yeah, so that was um, 40 years 40 years and still relevant. I've got to ask you about This Is The Day being used on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. How did that come about? Because This Is The Day um, has been used in so many films, TV shows, right. adverts over the years. It gets, I get requests for that probably uh, almost on a weekly basis, really. But recently, yeah. the Guardians of the Galaxy... And I hadn't seen the first two Guardians of the Galaxy films, but my uh -huh. sons had yeah. and enjoyed it, but I hadn't. And then we were asked for it to be used and we said yes but I did see the Guardians of the Galaxy 3 with my youngest son who's 11 and oh, so it's similar to, to, to my yeah. lad yeah and went to sit and then I knew it was in the film but when it came on he was like dad dad <laughs> and I really enjoyed the film actually I found Fantastic. it I thought it was brilliant I thought it was, it was quite emotional the character and I, I like the, the, the surrealness of it the sense of humour in it I thought it was really good and I thought it was well used. I didn't realise the device they'd used in the other films was the, the Walkman, hadn't it? So yeah. the playlist concept on, yeah. on either his Walkman or his iPod is a very big part of the film. But I thought the, I thought the music was really strong, actually, overall, and I really enjoyed the film. 
and we've had a huge amount of feedback from that. Yeah, from Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, a lot of positive, a lot of positive that, feedback from that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it's Do nice you, to see it being introduced to a younger generation. And you say that people, you know, ask you on a weekly basis, like for, for that gets, song in particular. It gets used a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah, really. yeah. I wish they'd use some of the other ones. Though. Well, yeah, that's it, isn't it? I feel the same about some of ours. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we always get asked for the only one I know one to another it's like what about North Country Boy <laughs> I know it's just as good <laughs> I think that's it you see, I think all artists feel the same but there's songs that I've written that better than that yeah but, it, it, but we, we, we're lucky to have songs that the, yeah you know, to have any songs that, that, that stand the test of time I think we're lucky to have that and that song fits every criteria doesn't it I suppose yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Matt it's an absolute pleasure and uh, such a thrill thank you so much for swinging by uh, thanks for being so supportive of, of the listening party in general. Well, thanks for inviting me again. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our listening parties, and this was equally enjoyable. Oh, you're amazing, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Thanks, Tim. Thanks to Matt Johnson for joining me on this episode of Tim's Listening Party to tell me all about soul mining. I always like to finish every episode of my listening party by letting you know what else I've been listening to this past week. I've definitely been listening to a lot of Dusty Springfield and Dusty in Memphis in particular. And the track I'd like to uh, highlight is um, Breakfast in Bed. Yesterday I listened to a lot of um, of Jane Birkin, for obvious reasons, when, when somebody who you really like uh, passes away. You know, you kind of like reach out and Jane B, ex-fan, the 60s classics to listen to. Check that out. I'm going to say that I've been listening to Beach House um, and particularly the track Walk in the Park. Also, as you can hear, I'm listening to Steve Lacey. And this one's called Dark Red. So I've been listening to Steve Lacey's album and everyone laughs at me for doing that. (laughs) Don't forget, if you missed any of this evening's show or want to replay any of the previous listening parties, just search and follow Tim's Listening Party wherever you get your podcasts. There you'll find episodes of the likes of Bangles, Gunk and Nancy, Fall Out Boy and more. Every song in this episode of My Listening Party was taken from The There's Soul Mining. All tracks were written and composed by Matt Johnson. The album was released on Some Bizarre and Epic. I'm Tim Burgess and thanks for listening. I'll see you next time for another listening party. And so you that, got the Omnicord. The Omnicord. Yeah, that's so okay. brilliant. And not that easy to play, right? No, they are easy. Oh, are so, they? <laughs> and you can, you can do all sorts of things, isn't it? But you can also... And you can even turn off, turn off the, uh, the the rhythm. And then. Brilliant. God, it's so gorgeous. In a kind of creepy way. And then it? you can even <laughs> even have the. Um, just the heart. Yeah. And did, did they all come with the drum machine as well? Uh, yes, all yeah, built in. So yeah. like, oh, <laughs> and you can turn the things up. Like, yeah. Uh, see. There you go. And then you can you can even touch the harp. Yeah. <laughs> nice.
Wow, it's so gorgeous. I mean, but it doesn't sound quite as good as a, this is the day, so. No, not, <laughs> not yeah, you just need to. No, more, so more practice, more definitely. Practice. Minor, oh, seven, oh, so gorgeous. Thank you. Absolute Radio, telling the story behind another iconic album with Tim Burgess. Get involved using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party. 